I am Sanjay Parekh, and I am the host of the Business of Meaning podcast, where we showcase businesses that pursue purpose and profit. My guest today is Andy Ayn. Andy is a product leader and business builder. He's currently the managing director of Backstage London, which invests $100,000 and supports women, people of color, and or LBGT founders. Prior to Backstage, Andy has worked in a range of product roles in companies such as World First, which was acquired by Ant Financial for $700 million. He's really passionate about creating pathways into tech and upskilling people from low-income backgrounds. He serves currently on the board of YSYS, Flipside, and Mixed Tech Madness, a startup that he co-founded with his brothers and friends. And in 2018, Andy received the accolade of being named as one of the FT's top 10 most influential BAME tech leaders in the UK. So welcome, Andy. Thank you. Thank you. I should uh, ask you to do my introductions all the time. That was wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. You, you, you've achieved a lot uh, in, your, in your career today. So it's, uh, it's great to have you here. Um, it'd be really good for the listeners to give, get an understanding of your past and how you, how you got to Backstage Capital from uh, your early beginnings, uh, I believe, in, in Tottenham. Yes, yes, thank you. So um, I guess just to, to kind of like set, set the context, um, I have a set of values that I kind of live by and, and have helped guide me through my career options. Um, and I'd love to share a few of those to, to help this story make a little bit more sense. Um, one is that I only work for gap closing companies. So I love companies that have, for example, financial inclusion within their goals, such as Monzo or what we're doing here at Backstage. Like I love, I love companies that are dedicated to closing gaps for people from diverse backgrounds, as well as people of color, women, LGBT founders, people that are able-bodied, not able. Those are the p- companies that I'm really passionate about, about working for and working with, because that's the difference I really want to see in the world. And from a young age, I really realized that relationships are my currency. Like, I'm really good at forming relationships with people, and those relationships often lead to opportunities. So the kind of story that, of, of how I even joined Backstage Capital was that initially I was blogging about this intersection between tech, diversity, and inclusion. And I was telling a lot of stories of musicians in the US that had transitioned into investors, such as Nas, the rapper, who's now a managing director at Queensbridge Venture Partners, which has invested in Genius, Dropbox, and, and Casper Mattresses. And Troy Carter, who was the manager of Eve, and Lady Gaga, who transitioned to Atom Factory and now Cross Culture Ventures, where he's invested in the likes of Warby Parker and Lyft. And then Arlen Hamilton, who's the CEO of Backstage Capital, who formerly was a tour manager for Will I Am before, before, joined, uh, before founding Backstage Capital. So I was sharing all of these stories in my blog, in my weekly blog, and, and guest blogging for other platforms, but here in the UK and across Europe. So I became almost that voice and that opinion leader within this space across this side of the pond. And through doing that activity, it led me to interviewing Arlen Hamilton for a podcast initially, which I actually never brought out, funny enough. And off the back of that podcast conversation, we just really hit it off. And I just asked her to like, learn a little bit more about the UK and European ecosystem. And I invited her over for a couple of trips where we did a few private and public events here in the UK with the startup ecosystem. So anyone from institutions, academics, to investors, to founders. I just got her really entrenched and introduced into the ecosystem so she could get a feel of what it's like to, to, to run a startup here in the UK and in London and what talent looks like here in this capital city. 
And over a series of those great engagements, um, she was left impressed and announced that actually one of the meetings that we had at EQT Ventures, um, that she would want me to lead as managing director of her, of her UK and European uh, operations, um, which started off as, as an accelerator program, which we just completed actually yesterday. Fantastic, fantastic. So wh- why are you so passionate about bridging the gap uh, between underrepresented peoples and, and, and the tech world? What's, what's driving you there, Andy? So I guess one of the, one of the interesting things, I guess being, being born first generation here in the UK, because my parents originated from Ghana, is that I was taught from a young age the, the opportunity I have to succeed just because of where I'm geographically born. And it was something that I always appreciated because in primary school, I'd have friends that were from Bangladesh, Pakistan, Ireland, uh, uh, Philippines, America, South Africa. And I just realized from a young age that London is one of the most multicultural cities in the whole of Europe, where there's over 90 nationalities that exist and over 300 languages are spoken. So we're just basically molded by diversity and inclusion from a very young age. And it became a really foreign and abstract concept to me when I, once I started working in the city, that the city just didn't mirror the community that I grew up in in Tottenham. And that just didn't sit right with me. And I just felt like this is something that's meaningful, that I want to move the needle on to make sure that the city is more representative of the world that we live in, especially even here in London. Um, and that just became a mission for me from a young, a young age. And uh, I've just been chipping, chipping away at it since with every role that I've had since that time. Okay, got it. Yeah, I mean... I used to live in London, lived there for 15 years, and you're absolutely right. And I think it's well documented anyway. It's, it's, it's normal that it's very diverse uh, when you're walking around the street. Um, but I would like you worked in the city for a while, and it was, you're right, it wasn't particularly diverse. And it's a very strange experience going from that one world where the working place is is uh, like you say not particularly diverse and then and then go home and, and seeing a completely different world it's it's bizarre how that can live uh, side by side precisely so you, you talked a, a lot there about uh, the us and how people had made transitions into investing and, and tech world uh over there what's what's different in the, in the us then compared to here because the US has lots of issues with diversity and, and inclusion, yet they seem to be a bit further ahead than we are in terms of allowing people to progress more freely. Yeah, I think, I think the biggest difference, obviously, is that the US has over 300 million people, right? So even the scale of the country in itself is just completely different to here in the UK. And one of the things I noticed from a very young age is that like US culture is, is, is like a product of globalization and they've almost packaged up their culture and shipped it across the world. And, and you see this across industries from a lot of the leading musicians in the world coming from the US, a lot of the leading sportsmen in the world coming from the US, a lot of the leading tech that's created for the rest of the world coming from the US. So the US actually globalizes a lot of its products and exports that culture into a lot of the industries that, that, that we see in, in our everyday lives. So actually, we're all very influenced then based on, on, on what we watch, what we consume, whether it's podcasts, whether it's blogs, whether it's TV, whether it's radio, from a, by a lot of US products and a, a US services and, and, and US content. So in realizing this, I see that like in technology specifically, 
Silicon Valley, I'm not sure many people don't know the origin story, but Silicon Valley was formed off the back of um, creating this almost like ecosystem in this city where you have like, like universities or colleges as they call them, such as Stanford that are set up to support technology. You've got various institutions from originally the semiconductor, um, the Fairchild Semiconductor Company, all the way to Cisco, IBM, Microsoft, who've been set up to support the ecosystem there. Then you have second, third generation entrepreneurs who are pouring money back into the ecosystem after successfully exiting. So you've got this really interesting environment out in San Francisco and Silicon Valley where they've almost had like generations of entrepreneurs really nurturing the ecosystem there. Whereas here in the UK and especially in London, we're going through maybe our first or second iteration of that. And we're just not seeing as big, com as big companies being grown here yet. So, so we don't see that same money flood back into the ecosystem because if you think of the biggest companies in the world, we're talking about like Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, they're all from the US and they're all based in out, out on the West Coast. You know? In the UK, we do have some winners, some who are significant, um, such as Skyscanner, such as like, even in Europe, we have Adian, we have, we have uh, Spotify, we have uh, Skype, but we just don't have the volume in that, in that concentration that the US does. You know? If California and Texas were countries in themselves, their GDP would represent top 10 GDPs for, for countries across the world. So the US is a very different environment into, uh, to the UK. However, it often gets compared as if it's like for life, and it's definitely not apples versus apples. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's like you say, scale is huge, and historically, they're just, they're just further ahead. So just winding things back to, to your experiences, how did you break into this world where essentially you were, you were excluded from for, for all sorts of reasons? Um, you know, not least your your cultural heritage, um, and like you say, you w went to the city and it was it was very different. But you seem to have carved a path through. It'd be really interesting to understand how you did that and how what the journey was from um, Ghanaian in Tottenham to to MD of Backstage Capital. Sure, sure. So one thing that I know is for, about myself from a young age is that I love to follow my curiosity and. I've never been really externally defined about kind of like what, do, what I want to do and, and, and the kind of life I want to live because I realized that there's really just one thing that I'm better than than anyone else on this earth and that's being myself. <laughs> so this is the only game that I can really win is being my most authentic self in all situations. So I remember during my first like, like work experience in the city, I worked for EY and St. Young as a management consultant. And a lot of the people there thought I was actually quite shy or I was quite quiet. But the truth was, I was only being 60% of myself in that environment because it was so foreign to me at the time. And it was such a bridge moving from an area like Tottenham to working in UI. And a great example that and a story that I like to tell is that I remember when I was first invited to come, to come for after work drinks. And I used to reject that offer. And then I finally went one day and one of my colleagues asked, like, why, why, why do I never come out for drinks? And I just told him growing up, it just wasn't the cultural thing to do. The first time that I entered the pub was when I was 21. And it seemed like such a foreign concept for him to, to, to hear that the first time I entered into a pub was at age 21. Yeah. But the problem I think within London, within these kind of workspaces is that there are a lot of people that actually don't have a similar experience growing up to me. And actually there's a lot of people that have very siloed experiences growing up. And unfortunately, throughout their education system, we're just not exposed enough 
So that diversity of thought related and rooted to a diversity of background. So we're not really taught a lot more or much about like other cultures outside of the British story. And I think it manifests even in this world of work. So in this world of work, like what I'm trying to encourage more is that it's not only about diversity and trying to hire people from different backgrounds, it's actually really about inclusion, which is about having your voices heard and acted upon. So when I left that job at Earth and Young, one of the things that I said to myself is that from now on, I'm not going to be 60% of myself in any work environment. I'm going to be my most authentic self. And as a result, I'm going to produce my best work. And since then, it's only compounded and it's been so true. So one of the pivotal moments in my journey which really led me into tech, or the two of the pivotal moments was, the first one was that I started a, a company with my brother and a few friends. And we were basically trying to um, scratch our own itch. We were fans of urban and UK grime and hip hop music. But what we found was that it was really fragmented with these sources where you would have to try and find and listen to this music on and offline. So we created a central location online where you could consume this music. Think about it like a, a niche Spotify that focused on just UK grime and hip hop. And this predated Spotify and Apple Music, right? So we launched that, it slowly grew organically. And before we knew it, we had 70,000 registered users. Before we knew it, we had half a billion streams. Before we knew it, we had over 100,000 people subscribed to our YouTube, to our SoundCloud, to our Spotify. And before we knew it, we had a business. And it was, a, it was almost like very similar to, to a lot of other entrepreneurs where it's accidental and you stumble into it. It was never meant to be a business. It was a hobby and an experiment. But it slowly continued to grow. And the more we learned about our customer base, it turned into more and more of a commercially viable opportunity for us. And that was kind of my first foray into tech where I was kind of learning, like, to be honest, the hard way, not through literature, not through any the lead startup book, not through all of this literature that's available today, but literally by failing and learning how to do it more intelligently and continue to go through that loop again and again and again. You know, and there's some methods that we use that are termed as things such as like growth hacking now that we just didn't even have the, the terminology to articulate back then. So one of the things that led to a significant growth, for example, in our customer base is that we were editing the, the Wikipedia pages of each of these artists because there was a window of opportunity in Wikipedia where you could literally, anyone could literally edit a page of an author as long as it's, it read still authentically and, and was true. So we created backlinks in like Skepta's page and Red Free 2 and Dizzy Rascal and all of these urban acts. So all of those hyperlinks were leading back to Mixtape Madness. And that was one of the first times we kind of did this, I guess, growth hack, which really led to a lot more organic growth into the platform. You know, so there's all these lessons that I was learning during that experience. I didn't have the language to quite articulate. And then the second pivotal moment on my journey was when I worked for a consultancy called Elixir. And one of the partners had a novel idea to rent an apartment out in San Francisco for seven months. And he took me along with him. And we basically built their innovation business, which is kind of like the North Star of their business today. And what we did out there was we networked with a lot of the leading VCs, such as Greylock Partners, Lightspeed Ventures, Sequoia, and Andreessen Horowitz. And we gained access to their portfolio companies, to the startups within their portfolio that they invested in. And we connect those startups to our corporate clients across Africa and across the UK. So we bring those corporate clients over into the valley for like a one-week experience. Well, they were here about emerging trends and things like machine learning or AI from some of the partners at the VCs. But then we'll matchmake and link them with portfolio companies out there in the valley so they can hopefully procure work from some of the startups. And that business skyrocketed and took off in a big way 
they also gave me the language to start articulating a lot of these experiences that I had. And that was the birth of my blogging journey too. Wow. Okay, that's some journey. Um, so, a um, bunch, bunch of interesting things you said there. So, you said that um, when you left uh, EY, you decided that you were going to be yourself. You know, you weren't you weren't your whole self when you were there, and you really wanted to make sure that that never happened again. How did you get the confidence to do that? Because that's quite a step, um, especially when you feel like an outsider and you feel that maybe by not being yourself you actually fit in and a lot of people feel that that's the way to get on to sort of you know to adopt the language to adopt the styles to to you know go to the pub when that's not really them i mean how did you get that confidence to say you know what this is me and um i'm andy and and uh, i'm like this to be honest I don't really talk about this very much, but I'm happy to share it in this intimate conversation that we're having. Um, one thing that happened in my life that, that just, just changed my mentality and, and, and my way of thinking was that my father passed away. And when my father passed away, I was, I was age 25, um, and I just decided that life is too short, right? Like, if I'm gonna live this life, I'm gonna live it to my best, and, and regardless when I leave this, this life, I want there to be a legacy that's left behind. And I felt there's no better time to start on that than now. And that kind of really led me to, to start on that, that journey. And I started learning a lot more about actually what people are achieving within a lifetime. You know, so I read about people such as Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. He was actually born and grew up in a mud hut and had no electricity, yet was able to become the first man to orbit our planet. And then I was learning about people like Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 26 years. And I was thinking, if he can go from prison to be president, I have no excuse, you know? Even recently, there was this documentary on Netflix called When They See Us, and these kids were wrong, wrongfully accused of raping a woman in the park in New York. And some of them spent up to 14 years in prison. And when you start being more relative around these experiences and these stories that you're hearing, it just made me feel motivated around, like, actually, this is a game of inches and this is a long game. And even if I gain an inch each week, each day, I'm going to get to where I want to in terms of the change that I want to see in the world. And from there, my mentality just changed completely. And sorry, Nelson Mandela was even in prison for 27 years. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, they are, yeah, they're inspirational characters. And, and like you say, the impact of, you know, close family member dying quite often makes us reassess what we're doing. and. And like you say, your own mortality comes sharply into focus as well, doesn't it? Um, Absolutely. So Backstage Capital, that's where you are now. And yes. the goal of Backstage is to, is to invest in people that are essentially underrepresented in the, in the VC-funded world. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing at Backstage and what some of the goals are and why... You, why that's been brought to London? Sure. So I guess just historically, even when I was growing up, one of the things I was interested in is that when I'd learn about tech and read these magazines and read the FT and The Economist or watch Bloomberg, the heroes that were held up were people such as Bill Gates at Microsoft or, or Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. And the thing I was immediately seeing was that 
all of these middle-class white men are not actually really relative to my story. I was seeking inspiration from them and I was learning from their journeys. But at the same time, I was painting a picture in my head that to succeed in tech, do you have to be a middle-class white man? Mm. And this just couldn't be true. And it's further from the truth. And then I was learning about statistics such as one P in every pound that's invested into startups goes to all female teams. Diversity VC right. and the BVC published that earlier this year. You know, in America, we're getting stats such as 0.2% of venture capital goes to black female founders. And then you just have to ask yourself, do you truly believe that talent is widely distributed? And if so, why, are not everyone, why isn't everyone afforded the opportunity to partake in that? Why can't everyone have the opportunity to become an entrepreneur? Why can't everybody have the opportunity to create the significant wealth that you can from partaking in this journey of being an investor or an entrepreneur? And that's what really led me to Backstage, to be honest, because Backstage is all about investing in this very audience. It's all about looking at actually the untapped opportunity about investing in what we call these underestimated founders. You know, and Backstage's real mission actually is to do ourselves out of a job. We wanted to become the status quo so that everyone's seeing investing in diversity as a smart thing to do and therefore we don't even need to exist. And it's really weird because within the venture capital industry, each investor will tell you that they're looking for outliers. They're looking mm. for people outside the norm. Yet they're not yeah. really willing to go to look where these people actually are because they're not really going to, to, to look for these women, these people of color, these LGBT founders, these veterans, these elderly. They're not really going to look for people different from the norm. So it's really a contradictory message that a lot of investors are actually sending out to the, to the rest of the startup community. And unfortunately, because we get all of these funding rounds published in media these days, you know, about this company has just raised X million, or this company is just IPO'd. Entrepreneurs actually treat that like the norm, when that's actually a very rare experience. And that's less than 1% of companies that are created, probably even less than 0.5% of companies that are created ever experience that. But yet, entrepreneurs look, that, look at that as signal and, and as a vision and almost like a North Star that sort of something that they want to achieve. Well, actually, that's not the normal experience of an entrepreneur. And, and we need to broaden this definition of what an entrepreneur is. Because my auntie who owns a, a food shop in Seven Sisters is an entrepreneur. My butchers is an entrepreneur. My florist is an entrepreneur. But the, the media has skewed it as if like, to start a tech startup is now our definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur, which simply isn't true. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more there, especially around the the funding stories um, that get published, and then the popular interpretation of that, as as you say, is that that's just normal, and and it creates the wrong also impression of what it means to start and create and grow a business. It's not a not. It, I feel a lot of founders think that the main goal is to raise money. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and that is so toxic in itself because what happens is like 80% of the meetings that I take with first time founders, they come to me thinking that they want to raise money when really they want to learn how to get traction. They want to learn how to get customers. They want to learn how to get their first 10 customers. They want to learn how to cost effectively market, maybe through content or doing a podcast or doing an editorial. They want to learn actually how to build a business, but they think they need funding in order to do so. And they don't realize actually the risk that they take when guys try and get funded without anything out in the market, no product at all. So a lot of my time is actually 
almost like teaching the skills and the knowledge on actually how to build a business, how to get your first set of customers, how to understand the risks that you're taking at each stage of growing that business. And a lot of my conversations are more geared towards that and actually how, how do you actually treat it as an experiment and measure the feedback that you're gaining as you go along building this business rather than treat funding as the end goal and a measure of success. You know, and you see, you see toxic things happen in terms of behavior as well in terms of founders who are prioritizing going on panels at events or self-nominating themselves for awards and, these, and, and, and almost like living the life they want to portray on social media. But then this becomes almost like a shackle because during those times where they feel like quitting, they feel like folding it in, they feel like pivoting, they feel like going back to work, they feel like they're held ransom by this public image that they portrayed of themselves instead of focus on just building a product that customers can love. So this is really interesting thing happening at the moment with social media and media in general, which I think is actually causing quite a toxic culture within entrepreneurship. Yeah, I think it, it, it's coming from a wider issue in society, isn't it? Um, but in entrepreneurship, it's just reflecting that, that people create a persona on social media and then it's actually false, but they find it hard to live up to that. And then that creates all sorts of uh, mental health issues and also specifically in business, but in business issues, because like you say, it's hard to live up to that if you haven't got the substance uh, be- behind it. Absolutely. Absolutely true. So let's say I'm a, I'm a founder. I, um, I've got an idea for a business. I, I've heard about you. Um, what, what, how, how do people interact with you? And what is it you're looking for? And you said a lot of the time you're just coaching people on, on the basics. So, so how does that work in practice? Because clearly you can't, you can't talk to everybody. So how, what, how do you filter but the dangers it's with filtering great, is you might, you might filter out a really good person. So. No, it's a, great, it's a great question. I think the, the, the majority of the time, um, I try and make myself as available as possible and as accessible as possible. So, for example, on my website, andyam.com, you can literally like submit your pitch deck directly to me because I don't want it to feel like you need a warm intro to get to me. I don't want to put more barriers up to have a conversation. And instead of me meeting up with everyone that, that gets in contact with me because I just don't have the capacity, I usually route them to some content that I've created that could be helpful to them, or I route them to an event that we're going to host, such as office hours, where we have a series of investors who give feedback to startups over a 15 to 30 minute conversation, which I find is really useful for startups to start getting relationships with investors, but to start getting feedback to help them build their companies. And the final thing that I've been working on actually is um, an online course. So almost like an online school for first time founders, especially which will walk through things like, like how do I set up experiments? How do I set up meaningful metrics and KPIs? How do I actually run an experiment? How do I do that with little or no budget? How do I start developing a customer base? How can I grow organically through building a product that customers love rather than going through paid ads and spending a lot of money for little returns? I don't even understand how it works. So I'm starting to put a curriculum around this because what I find is whenever I get a significant volume of the same repeatable types of problems, I always think about what are scalable ways that I can serve this audience rather than one-to-one meetings because I just haven't got the capacity. So that's really manifesting itself now in a lot of the content that I'm creating and the online course that I'm, I'm going to be releasing later this year. Got it, got it. Yeah, that sounds like a great way to reach more people. And the fundamentals, I think, you know, one of the problems is there are the fundamentals and a lot of the time it isn't particularly sexy. You know, it is, you know, 
just Absolutely. doing the grind, doing the hard work. And I, I don't know, sometimes people don't want to hear that. Um, but you have to do that, I think. You have to do that hard work, that grind, the, the difficult things uh, to be successful. But you know what? This is, I, loved, I love that comment that you just said because sometimes I meet people who are about to think about quitting their job or they just quit their job. But in reality, they need to have that conversation that you're talking about around the fundamentals and understanding what the trade-off is. Like you may be working, you're likely to be working more hours than you did at work. You're likely to not enjoy these aspects of admin and running the business that are part of parcel of doing it because you're a small team or you're a band of one. And actually, are you really leaving your job because you hate your job? Because if so, maybe it might be an idea to find a job that you love. You know, and people don't, don't treat that as a viable enough alternative. They almost jump into entrepreneurship as if it's the answer, when often actually it, it is not. And a lot of the roles that I've done throughout my career, such as the business that I built within Elixir, was actually entrepreneurship. It was entrepreneurship within a company. Even what I've done here at Backstage and helping to build a blueprint for the Accelerator program and running the first program. Again, I was working for Backstage as a company. It was not my business. So there's a lot of opportunities that you can seek out that require entrepreneurial traits that are within a company and is increasing more and more now actually as corporates try to learn how to work more like startups. So I think a lot of founders need to be honest with themselves and ask that question actually, what is the learning experience that they seek and what are the different places that you can actually gain that experience? That's really, really interesting what you said there because the, um, I think like I agree with you, one of the issues is that entrepreneurship has been put out there as a solution to every workplace frustration or problem that you might be having but actually it may be that you're not well suited to entrepreneurship it does require a certain set of skills and and, and personality types and it's not for everyone however that doesn't mean exactly what you said it doesn't mean that you can't uh, do entrepreneurial things you just need to find roles that are more entrepreneurial so how do so, so when when you're looking at people do you guide them do you guide them towards maybe being more of an entrepreneur or, or do you see people that you think, oh, look, you're, you're, you're great, but you're just not suited for entrepreneurship? Um, I mean, what's your experience? So the, the, cha- the challenge is I'm, I'm not in a qualified position to tell anyone that they're not suited to entrepreneurship, right? But one thing I can do is share a little bit about my experience with them to tell them the experiences that I've had as an entrepreneur, the experiences that I've had as an entrepreneur, and the experiences that I've had as an investor. So I can only speak to the truth of my lived experience, and hopefully that's useful for them helping to make decisions for themselves. But what I find actually is that a lot of the times it comes down to actually having a discussion about what are your core values and what are the learning experiences that you really seek. And a lot of people don't spend enough time really thinking and considering what that may be for themselves. You know, so even for myself, one of the the, the core values that I live by, like I said, is that I want to work for gap-closing companies. So that means that I can't apply to any and every job when I'm looking for a job because not every and every job is gap-closing and not every and any and every company is gap-closing, you know? Like, again, another one of my kind of guiding principles is that, like, I want to work in a company where I have ownership and responsibility for a product or a product area. If I can't have that, then it's not the right job for me, and that's okay. You know, and I think rather than having a scattergun approach or jump into entrepreneurship, like a lot of the times I'm spending time with people really honing in on what the things that they value and what the experiences that they seek in their next experience and helping to use that almost like a guiding principle or a criteria 
to filter what is the right and wrong opportunity to, for them to pursue. It's almost like you really need to get the heart of knowing yourself before you Absolutely. put yourself out there. Absolutely. It starts with that self-awareness. It's like, who am I? What do I represent? And what do I want to be known for in this world? And we don't like thinking about deep things like that because, because it's hard. And it's hard to arrive at that answer. It may have to be taking some time in some solitude or in the wilderness, like going backpacking or going traveling or going for a swim or going for a long walk. These, these are not answers that just roll off the tongue. It requires deep thought to arrive at them, but, but it's necessary and it helps guide, guide that kind of long-term vision of kind of like who you want to be and what you want to be known for. So I think it's extremely important to, to, to start having those conversations and to have, start having those reflective thoughts. Um, and it's a healthy thing to do for, for all of us. Yeah, it's a great thing to do. And I think also it forces you to make some decisions. I think quite often people don't want to make decisions and, and they want to um, leave all the options out there. Uh, and that's, I think, a mistake. You need to, like you said, be very specific about what you want, but you have to do the thinking time. Absolutely, absolutely. And something that definitely helps me a lot on my journey as well is um, just, to, just the fact that I've been tracking everything that I've been doing. So I've been keeping almost like a journal for the last four or five years so that I can look back every six months or every 12 months, almost like what Google Analytics does for like your website. And I can start looking at the patterns of the things that I've been like noting down, you know? So like, for example, I was, I was, I was uh, uh, maybe 12, 15 months ago, I had noticed that a lot of my blog content was in this intersection of diversity and inclusion and tech. And I doubled down on that and I found more opportunities to write about that, to talk about that. And eventually it led to me working within that space. But I may not have ever known that that was the path that I wanted to take if I didn't have the tracker to remind me because I can't rely on just my memory alone to always remember all of these experiences. You know? And it's every little thing from like feedback that I'll receive on email or in a comment on LinkedIn sometimes or on a phone call or a meeting that I have. Any significant moment, whether it's good or bad, I was noting it down. And therefore, it was allowing me to actually track my curiosity and understand where it was leading. Because it's much easier to connect the dots when you're looking back than you are looking forward, which is why people write biographies, right? And, yeah. and that's how it's so true for me till today and be super useful for me today. So I'm such an encourager of like, just keeping a journal or a diary. Yeah, that's a great thing to do, like you say, because you can't see the future, can you, when you're, when you're sitting down? But like you say, when you look back, and I think it was, um, um, was it Steve Jobs that said that, actually, in, in, in some speech? The, the, the is, you know what, every time I mention that, someone's mentioned that commencement speech, so I must watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it basically says the thing that you said, which is, you know, you can't, uh, you can't join the dots uh, looking forward. You can only join them looking back. And he was talking about, he, he studied calligraphy. And he... He just didn't know that calligraphy would be such a, an important part of the fonts and the way uh, the Mac started to look because he'd, he'd learned all this stuff about beautiful fonts. So, so there you go. You, you just don't know where it's going to lead your curiosity, like you say. Um, Absolutely. So in terms of the uh, backstage just had its first cohort, and I understand that's, that's, that's now uh, completed and you're going through a review process. It would be really good to just hear about... Um, some of the companies that that went through that process and uh, and w what's happening uh, now with uh, those companies in backstage. 
Absolutely. This is my favorite subject. And in every conversational interview that I do, I love to just highlight and elevate our companies because of the amazing work they're doing. So just before I leave it to the companies, um, just based on that data point that I mentioned before around kind of like investing in underestimated founders, as I said, like in the US, less than 1% of, of venture capital is going to people of color. Our portfolio at Backstage, the 125 companies that we have invested in, 80% of them are people of color, okay? VC has invested into 17% of, of, of female teams in the US. We've invested in 68%, okay? So this is significant, the amount of difference and change that we're seeking to have in this world. I mentioned before that 0.2% of venture capital goes to black women. 37% of our portfolio are black women. Right. So you can see the table stakes difference in, in who we're trying to back and who we're trying to support here. And the fact that when we even released applications for the, the uh, accelerator program, we had 1,900 applications with no uh, paid advertising, with only three weeks of releasing even the applications. So there's demand is there and people are hungry for, for, for capital support and access to the network to make a difference and grow in their businesses. It's just whether others are willing to start backing these diverse founders because they're out there and they need and they want the support and they want the access, right? So yeah. onto the companies. Um, the first one uh, is Afrocentrics. It's an amazing company who formulates and manufactures natural products for Afro and curly hair. Um, they rebranded actually during their time in the backstage program, and they can find a lot of their products either in uh, either on their website or through uh, distributors such as Whole Foods across the UK. And what I love about them is that they realize that for Afro, Afro and curly hair, there's been a substandard um, uh, experience in shops right now. You can't find the right products in the shops like Boots. You can't find the right products in your, in your super drop. You can't even find the right products in your supermarket like your Tesco's. All right. And then when you do go to an independent store, it's dusty products that are left on like the top shelf. And yeah. the people in the store don't even know how to speak with expertise to your type of hair. So they've really seen an opportunity here globally, actually, with producing organic and natural products, but also 10x of the experience of what, is, what it should be like to get products that suit your hair and advice by people that understand your hair. Secondly, we have Trim It which was the UK's first tech-enabled mobile barbershop, delivering the highest quality haircuts to wherever you are. So whether you're at a gym, whether you're at work, whether you're at home, a van will pull up to your door, and almost like the Uber for, for, for haircuts. They'll pull up to your door, you'll get in the van, and get this premium uh, haircut experience, and you can book it all with the ease of an app. And what was really exciting earlier this week is that they announced that they're going to be launching their new female trucks which are really for, for, for women to do their nails. So there's going to be a, a, an experiment run over the next two months where they're going to be doing women's nails in the back of the truck as well. And what I love about Trimit is that they've really, really understood this space as a service space and really actually what the potential, what the potential opportunities are once you reconvene how we use space as we see it today. And it's a similar kind of hypothesis that you see the likes of Airbnb or WeWork working on and how they're reinventing everyday spaces. Uh, next, we have Gelden, who are a media company committed to spotlight and creative talent of women and non-binary people of color. And this year, they, they released a, their own book, 
but they've also done a ton of partnerships with really great brands such as Night Run, um, uh, Made.com, The Guardian, BBC. They're, they're, they're so inspirational in the kind of work that they're doing because everything that they, 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 they write is by women and non-binary people of colour and it's for all. Like, the thing that I find interesting when we talk about diversity is people often silo it and feel like, for example, what I'm describing with Geldem, if they're writing content by women and non-binary people of colour, that means the audience must be women and non-binary of colour, which is not true. Because yeah. we don't say that Facebook is only for white middle-class men who was created by Mark Zuckerberg. And I urge and encourage all of your listeners to take a look at some of their amazing content on their website. Okay, I know this is a long plug, but we'll get into it. That's all right. No worries. No, no, it's interesting to hear the you know, different businesses. So next we have Tabua Health, who travel all the way from Kenya to join us on this program here in London. And Tambua has an incredible technology which is similar to how Shazam identifies music on your phone and push it a button. If you cough into your smartphone, they can diagnose and tell you if you are at risk of having tuberculosis or pneumonia or any respiratory diseases. And it's incredible technology that they've worked on to really build a database of understanding basically cough signals and sounds from your lungs and your heart to be able to diagnose you as to what you may have. And they have both software and hardware, so they work with medical centers and hospitals in getting hardware to places across Africa that uh, usually actually have no access to this kind of um, um, software and hardware. And I'm just really excited about them growing and scaling to over a thousand hospitals, hopefully in the next two years across Africa. And this is life-changing work, right? We're talking about diseases that can be treated if you can get them in time. Things like pneumonia, things like asthma that people are dying from because we're not able to treat them quick enough in these developing nations across Southeast Asia and Africa. Uh, and finally, we have Vite London, who have just actually launched a CEDAS campaign. I'm not sure what day this is going out, but if you launched a CEDAS campaign, we should hopefully be live when this goes out. Um, and Vite is the watch brand that's changing lives. Um, and what they do is for every watch that they sell, which is a premium watch, um, they help to educate a child in Sub-Saharan Africa. And what I love is it's very similar to Tom's model where it's a product with a purpose. Um, and that's the five founders that we have on our program. All mission-led, all values-driven, but all with great products that are globally applicable. Wow, fantastic lineup there. So there, there doesn't seem to be a pure tech in there. Is that, is that deliberate or just, just how that came through in terms of the companies you selected? Well, to be honest, Taboo is very deep oh, tech. Taboo, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah AI and, and machine learning actually to, to, to improve the diagnosis, diagnosis of their software. But you're right, we're, we're industry agnostic. We don't just look at tech, we look at tech enabled as well. And similar to what we've seen actually in the US, there are many brands that are direct to consumer that scale. You know, like Jet.com was an e commerce platform bought by, by, by a billion dollars. Um, and by Amazon, like, um, not by Amazon, by Walmart. Um, Warby Parker again, another direct consumer company. So there's a lot of actually non-tech players that are that are globally applicable, such as Harry's Harry Shaving Club or Dollar Dollar Shaving Club or Harry's. Like all of these direct consumer players that actually are not tech, but are actually globally applicable and still investable businesses. And we see that across the board, which is why we invest across across industries. Got it, got it. And I guess it just widens that uh, pool as well. If it's if it's purely tech, I, I, my guess is that you are, you're going to have a harder time in making the 
intake diverse. So by doing this, you allow people who aren't necessarily, you know, um, heavily steeped in software engineering to still partake in creating interesting businesses. Absolutely. And yeah, just to make it clear, there are, there are a ton of founders, obviously, who are software engineers who have computer science backgrounds, who are people of colour, women, or LGBT founders. So this is not a lowering of the bar. It's more widening participation and being able to see that there's actually scalable business models that sometimes just don't rely on just pure tech. And, and we see the opportunity there because as investors, for us, being very transparent, like the last, last part of our investments are often between five and 10 years where we are a company will either IPO or get acquired and that's how we're making our returns. And we can see the path for all of these companies to grow significantly and be globally important so they can get to those stages in five to 10 years or even further if they're building an even bigger business. So I think that's the metrics that matter to investors like such as ourselves. And we see the path to, to scale for all of these companies within our cohort. So, so what happens next to this cohort then? They've, they've been through your program. You've provided them, it sounds like, much more than an investment. Uh, you know, a lot of advice, a lot of help. I guess tuning their business models, uh, refining, uh, you know, messaging, that sort of thing. What, what do they do now, though? Is that, is that the end of them in terms of your involvement? Or, or do they still, does there still follow up? No, so, yeah, yeah, there's still follow up. So the way it works for us is that because we're not just an accelerator program, but we're also a VC as well, which has a fund that makes direct investments into startups, those companies graduate into what we call our headliners. And you'll continue to have access to the network and access to the support on an ongoing basis from, from um, our, 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 our core team. So just because they've graduated out of the accelerator program, they still have our support. They just don't have the ongoing programming that we had over three months within our office, such as our, our expert workshops every Wednesday or like our Monday stand-up sessions. So they just lose that, that structure of the accelerator program but still have us as a brand and a community to leverage and support. Right. Um, and do they go on and, I know we talked about raising money not being the be all and end all, but um, is it that they will start looking uh, to raise funds for the next stage? I know you mentioned, uh, you know, one company was on Cedars or about to go on Cedars. Yeah, yeah. So, so some of them are. So like, like what we mentioned, Vite London are currently raising on Cedars. They raise around £75,000. Um, Tabua Health are also raising at the moment, they're raising a $1.2 million round. So our, our founders are actually raising at the moment, um, and some may go on to raise in the next 12 to 15 months as well. It just depends on the growth trajectory and what's required in terms of the next phase of growth. So do they need to raise, for example, to hire some more staff, to help scale the product, to put money into marketing? It's just understanding actually the levers that needed during that, that phase of growth. Got it, got it. So in terms of um, providing meaning in business, um, the, the, the podcast is all about how do you make sure that you have a real purpose and a real strength to, to your business as well as making money. How, how would you advise others to make sure that they have meaning within their business? I think one, one thing I've noticed is that it's much harder to change but I see culture, culture as strategy now. And, and I, I truly believe that because 
when you scale to a certain scale as a company, it's no longer the founder making all the decisions. It's no longer the founder having all of the great ideas. It's going to come from different sources, such as your customers, such as your employees. And we see innovations like Google Maps um, uh, created from within a company by their employees. And we see it more and more in companies, actually, that when you have this culture that, that has been set, that people feel like they can have permission to, to really try and experiment with ideas and see what lands. And their success, success for all comes from everyone. And one of the hardest things is that culture is similar to clay. Like, once clay is wet and you're molding it at the start, it's very easy to find its shape, whether you're molding a cup or molding a bowl. But actually, once it sets, it's very difficult to then mold it. So I find that it's much more easier and much more important to try and have influence on founders at the start of that journey, like where we invest or earlier, so that they can really start thinking intentionally about what they value, uh, building products with purpose, what their mission really is, and what are the things that they're most importantly not going to compromise on. Right, got it. So really important to get that right at the beginning or really think hard about that at the beginning so that once the business develops, you're not, uh, you're not, you're not constrained because things are, uh, have set, essentially been set. Exactly, precisely. So, so to sort of wrap things up, Andy, what's 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 next for Andy Aim and, and Backstage Capital? Yeah, so at the moment we're just really synthesising a lot of the lessons learned um, and putting together a little report to summarise the program and impact that we've had and the impact that our founders really have had. Um, and then it's really about like joining the other teams across the four cities, Detroit, Philadelphia, LA, and here in London, to really start strategizing around the path ahead and, and what cohort two, three, and four could look like, hopefully next year. Oh, sounds, sounds really exciting, especially the uh, learnings across uh, the different offices across the world. So how can people find out more and how can people get in contact uh, with Backstage and, and yourself? Sure, so you can either come directly to backstagecapital.com or if you want to uh, uh, email the London team you can email the London team at um, info at backstage London uh, uh, backstage capital London at backstagecapital.com sorry or you can just sign up to my newsletter and I'll be happy to, to leave a link to this podcast or you can find it at andyam.com Fantastic well thanks Andy we'll, we'll put all those in the show notes as well and, and links to all the, all the companies as well so if people want to find out more they can they can look there. Well, thank thanks you. very much, Andy. Thanks, uh, thanks for your time today, and thank you for sharing your story with us and showing us all how you conduct business with meaning. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks again, Andy, for an inspiring story and sharing your values about entrepreneurship, diversity, and investing. I do hope that Andy's views encourage you to be true to yourself at work and consider how you could make your workplace and investment decisions more diverse. Now for our listeners, we'd really appreciate it if you could share this podcast with your colleagues and friends. And if you love what you're hearing, it would be great if you could leave a review on iTunes. If you've got any direct feedback, we'd love to hear from you, either via Twitter, at BOFmeaning, or via email at sanjay at thebusinessofmeaning.com. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you all on the next episode.